0: Well, it is good to be with you guys today. Um, one of the things I've learned over the years is that there's there's three components to a good sermon. Uh, a good sermon, besides being based on the Word of God and being and teaching the Word of God, a good sermon will have three components. It'll have a head component which is information, something that, that teaches you something, that you, get, you grow in knowledge about the Lord and about Christ and about the gospel. You've got your head, and a good sermon will have a heart component, that it's not just a head component, but it's something that, that spurs you to and moves uh, your emotion and your heart and your love and affection to Jesus. And then a good sermon uh, also has kind of a hands component, which is you take what you've learned from the head and you feel with the heart and you go do something about it. Um, I, my sweet spot is when I'm kind of heavy in, in heart and heavy in the hands because I'm not that smart, so I'll leave that stuff to Hall M. Um, but today is one of those sermons kind of out of my comfort zone. It's a lot, a lot of head. It's a lot of, of, of head stuff. It's a lot of knowledge. And I, and I left it that way intentionally because the idea behind knowledge is it's move it's meant to move you to affection. Amen. You understand what I'm saying is that there's something about the knowledge of God that's meant to come out uh, through our affections and through our life. And so hang with me through this sermon. It's not super long, but there's just a lot of information. And the idea is, is as you hear this, you'll go, oh, man, I get the gospel better. I get the Lord's supper better. I get what Jesus was doing. I get why he had to shed his blood. And so there may be not just in this moment, but maybe seven, eight, nine, 10, 14 days from now or two years from now, the information that you learned will move your heart to worship even then. That's the goal and that's the hope. So let's open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 14, verse 22. Mark chapter 14, verse 22. And we'll be there in just a minute. Um, I grew up in a little small town in East Texas and, and went to a church there in this little small town of East Texas. And as, I, as a little kid, one of my favorite Sundays to go to church was the, were the Sundays that we did the Lord's Supper or communion. And for those of you guys that are new to church or maybe don't have understand what the Lord's Supper is, just kind of a one-sentence definition, and we're going to spend the rest of the sermon today unpacking this. But the Lord's Supper is when you eat some bread and uh, you drink some wine or you drink grape juice if you're a Baptist, and you remember the, the body and the blood of Jesus. And as a little kid, those were always my favorite Sundays. I always get fired up when I came to church and I saw the elements at the front of the church because my preacher was long-winded, and I would always get hungry, and Lord's Supper equals snack for me as a little kid, and so I always fired up about that. And then as I got older... And I realized, well, it's more than, you know, obviously just a snack that we get to have at church, but it's actually a time where you're supposed to think about the cross and think about Jesus. And so that's what it became for me for a long time is, you know, ate some bread, drank some juice and remember Jesus. But, but, but now as, as I've kind of gotten older and as I've studied the scripture and especially this week, I've, I've begun to understand and realize that the Lord's Supper is more than that. It's, it's this really powerful picture and I choose that word carefully. It's a powerful picture that God places in the scripture to help us kind of get our minds around why Jesus had to die. Because he kind of tells us in the Lord's Supper. He explains it, why he had to die. Okay, have you ever wondered that? Have you ever stopped for just a second and, and why the blood of Jesus was necessary for our sins to be forgiven. Have you ever thought about that? Why did Jesus have to, have to have to die? Why, why are we all the time singing about the blood? What's so special about the blood of Jesus? Why we talk about it all the time? Why we preach about it? Why we sing about it all the time? The Lord's Supper helps us understand why Jesus had to shed his blood. And my hope today, and my prayer for you today as you listen to this information in this preaching that my, my hope for you is that you will, as we do the Lord's Supper today, and then as you go and live your life, that the Lord's Supper and, and what it means will, will mean more to you today than it's ever meant in your whole life. And, and we'll worship Jesus because of it. All right, Mark chapter 14, verse 22. Let me set the stage here before we jump in. Uh, Jesus has gathered his disciples in the upper room. Judas has just left the building and has gone to betray Jesus. And so at this very moment, he is betraying Jesus. And so the only people left in the room are his true disciples. And then Jesus, as he's sitting around now with the 11, because the 12th is left, he's sitting with the 11, and Jesus does something that's very difficult for us as 21st century um, American Christians to understand. But Jesus is about to do something that's shocking. It's shocking. And I'll show you what he does. Matter of fact, it's one of the most shocking things he does in his time in ministry. In Mark chapter 14:22, it says as they were eating he took bread and after he blessed it he broke it and he gave it to them and said take this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks he gave it to them and they all drank it and he said to them this is my blood Of the covenant which is poured out for many. And then he said, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And the scripture doesn't say it, but I promise you this that as soon as Jesus said those words that I just read, the jaws of the disciples would have dropped open and they would have looked at each other and looked at Jesus and said, what in the world did Jesus just say? What did he just do? Now, why in the world would the jaws of of the disciples drop? Why would they have that reaction to Jesus? And here's the answer. Because when Jesus said those words, he just broke with over a 1,000 years of tradition and he totally rewrote the meaning and the order of the Passover meal. That's what Jesus just did. Completely rewrote the meaning. Um, If if the Jewish leaders were in the room that night when Jesus just said that, hey, this is my body, that's my blood. If the the Jewish leaders, the high priests, would have been in the room and they heard him say those words, they would have torn their clothes in half and they would have started screaming at the top of their lungs that this man is a heretic. Okay, now, to understand how Jesus broke from tradition and why that's so radical and why that helps us understand why it is that Jesus had to die and shed his blood, you have to understand the order and the meaning of the original Passover meal. And when you understand the order and the meaning, you understand how it is that Jesus strayed from it and what he meant by it, okay? Now, here's a question. What's the Passover meal? What's the Passover meal? What's going on here? Well, for the ancient Jews and still for the Jewish people today, the Passover meal is an annual meal that commemorates a defining moment in Israel's history. All right, back in the day, the Jewish people were enslaved by the Egyptians. It was a horrible time of oppression for the Jewish people. And the Passover meal was this annual meal that they celebrated God releasing them from slavery in Egypt. Okay, so that's what Jesus is doing on that night with his disciples He's about to walk to the cross. He's about to die. The disciples don't really get that yet. He stops and he shares the Passover meal with them. Now, before we go any farther, I want you to know two things about the Passover meal that God commanded his people to do back in the day. God said two very specific things about the Passover meal. Number one, God commanded the people, I want you to do it every year. He said that in the scripture, this Passover meal, you celebrating me releasing you from Egypt, I want you to do it every year. And the second thing he tells the people is that when you do it every year, I want you to do it the exact same way. Every single one of the elements of the original Passover meal had meaning and there was an order to which they did it. And they did it to remind them of all these different elements about the Exodus and God delivering them from slavery in Egypt. So God says, do it every year, do it exactly the same. And that's exactly what the people of God did. Think about that. From the time that the first Passover night happened until that night with Jesus in the upper room, it's been over a 1,000 years between those two things. And every single time, every single year for over a 1,000 years, the head of the household would stand up, he'd walk his family through the different elements of the Passover meal, all they they meant, and then the next year they would do it again the exact same way, and the next year they would do it the exact same way. So... Jesus is in the room with the disciples that night. These are Jewish guys. Okay, they they grew up being Jewish. And so every one of those disciples would have known by heart the order and the meaning of every part of the Passover meal. They could have led it themselves. Why? Because for generation after generation after generation, it had been done exactly the same until this night. And on this night, Jesus. The head of the house, this man that's about to walk to the cross is going to stand up. And again, for the very first time in the history of the Jewish people is going to break tradition and do Passover completely different than it had ever been done before. And, and, and really, listen to what I'm about to say. To understand how and why he did it differently, you really have to understand how and why it was originally meant to be done. So let's just go through it here for a minute. The first thing to understand about the original Passover meal and why what Jesus just said was so amazing and so radical is this. The first thing to understand is there were four cups in the original Passover meal. And the four cups in the original Passover meal, every one of these four cups had a meaning. Okay, and and the the meaning for each one of the cups, each cup represented the four, if you're taking notes, of the four promises of God in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. If you go read Exodus chapter 6 verse 6 and 7. God makes four promises to the people of God. And so there were four cups in the original Passover meal that represented the four cups. The the first cup represented the promise of God to the people of God that he was going to rescue them from Egypt. Alright, that's the first cup. The second cup represented the promise of God that he would free them from their slavery. They would no longer be in bondage, but they'd be free. Okay, the third cup When it starts getting interesting, we're going to come back to the third cup here in a minute. But the third cup was this. Listen carefully. It was the promise of God to his people that he was going to ultimately redeem them, not by their power, but by his power. He made a promise to them. I'm going to redeem my people. I'm going to make them new. And I'm not going to do it through their power. They're not going to be able to do it themselves. I'm going to redeem them and make them new through my power. That's what the third third cup and the third promise represented. And then then there's a fourth cup. We're going to come back to that in a minute too. The fourth cup was the future promise of God that God was going to restore relationship with his people once and for all at some point in time in the future. That was the fourth cup. And so what happened is the head of the household would stand up. Right, And he would hold up the first cup and he would remind his family of the promise it represented that God is going to rescue them from Egypt. And then he would pass the cup around and each person in the family would drink the cup and remember the promise of God. And then the head of the household would pick up the second cup and he would remind them of the promise of God that it represented. And then he would pass the cup around and that each one of the family members would drink it. Okay? And then... The guy would step away, the head of the house would step away from from the first two cups. And before he went to the third, he would grab some bread. And he would hold it up to his family. The head of the household would hold it up to his family and he would break it like this. And he would remind his family that what this bread stood for was affliction. This bread right here in the original Passover meal is called the bread of affliction. And he would take a little piece of it and he would pass it out to his family and each one of his family members would eat it and they would, when they, when they ate it, when they took it into themselves, they would remember the affliction of their forefathers in slavery in Egypt. When they ate of the bread of affliction, they were supposed to stop and pause and remember, listen, the affliction that was taken upon themselves and their forefathers because of their slavery. And so been doing that for a thousand years. This is the bread of affliction. Remember the affliction that the people of God took upon themselves when they were in slavery. So I want you to imagine the disciples' shock when for the first time in over a thousand years, they weren't expecting it. They were expecting the same old story, the same old way. Jesus breaks from the tradition of generations of his forefathers and at that point of the meal says this in verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread and after he blessed it, he broke it. So far so good, right? Been doing this for thousands of years. But then he broke it and he gave it to them and said, take for this is my body. It's my body. Literally in in the Greek it reads take because I am myself. This bread is what Jesus is saying. And again, church, I'm telling you, their jaws would have dropped because this is what Jesus just said to them. This is what he just revealed to them. He's saying, fellas, from now on, this, this broken bread no longer represents the affliction of your forefathers. Jesus is saying this broken bread no longer represents the affliction taken on by the people of God. Jesus is saying from now on this bread represents my body and it represents the truth that my body from now on is going to take on the affliction of the people of God. Jesus is saying I'm going to take upon myself the affliction of the people of God so the people of God don't have to anymore." And there are two things Jesus is trying to show them and show us through that. Number one, Jesus is explaining to them, look, I've been telling you guys for all these years about the kingdom of God that's coming. He's been trying to tell them about this kingdom of God that's going to show up. And, and, and all the disciples, they just didn't get it. They didn't get the concept of Jesus having to die to establish the kingdom of God. They thought that they were going to go and they were going to establish a kingdom the way you always establish a kingdom. They were going to break the back of the Romans through military force, or through politics. And on this night, in this crazy radical way, Jesus takes some bread. He breaks, he goes, no, we're not going to do it that way. The kingdom of God is going to be established by breaking something, all right. The kingdom of God is going to be established by the breaking of my body. I'm going to take on the affliction of the people of God myself. Jesus was talking about the cross. He was talking about the nails in his hands and his feet. He was talking about the torture that he's about to go through starting in just a few hours. He's talking about the beating. He's talking about the crown of thorns. He's talking about the nakedness. He's talking about the pain. He's talking about the fact that in just a couple of hours, he's gonna be on his knees in the garden of Gethsemane with blood coming out of his forehead because it hits him. I've never sinned, but I'm about to become sin. And when I become sin, I'm gonna be separated from a relationship with my heavenly father that I've known and enjoyed for all of eternity. And I'm going to cry out from the cross, oh God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is saying, yeah, the kingdom of God's going to be established by breaking something. It's going to be established by the breaking of my body. You know, in a traditional Passover meal, it didn't stop there with the breaking of the bread of affliction. In the traditional Passover meal, at this point, um, the head of the household would, would lift up some bitter herbs right, some bitter herbs, and I, I, I didn't know what they were. I don't know what herbs they were, so I didn't bring any herbs upon on the table. Just use your imagination, but he'd hold up some herbs, and he would say, hey, we're supposed to eat these, and we're gonna eat these bitter herbs to remember the bitterness of our slavery in Egypt. Now, you know what's interesting to me and fascinating to me if you go read the story? It's been done that way for a 1,000 years. Jesus just skips the herbs. doesn't even talk about them. Doesn't hold them up, doesn't mention them. Passes right over them. Why why did Jesus break from tradition right there? Why why does he not mention these bitter herbs and been eaten at every Passover meal since the inception of it? I got to believe that what the gospel writer is showing and what Jesus is doing is that Jesus is saying this new kingdom that I'm establishing through the breaking of my body is going to once and for all take away the bitterness of the people of God. And they will remember it no more. Totally skips it. In the original Passover meal that had been done for years and years, generation after generation, right after the bitter herbs, which Jesus skips, the, the head of the house would hold up this fruit, and it was a gray fruit. I don't know what kind of fruit it is, it was gray. And they would eat it to remember the bricks that they would make in their toil and slavery and burden their time in Egypt. And so they eat this gray fruit, and it reminded them of the bricks their forefathers had to make in slavery. Once again, Jesus breaks with tradition, completely skips the fruit, doesn't pass it around. Disciples are going, what's going on? Why did he skip the fruit? In hindsight, we realize what Jesus is doing and what what he's trying to show them and what he's revealing to them and what he's revealing to you and what he's revealing to me is this new thing Jesus has, has going, this new kingdom he's establishing that's going to be established and built and made by the breaking of his body, that he's going to take the affliction of the people of God on himself. What he's saying is we don't have to remember slavery anymore because he, through his blood and through his body, he's going to free us from slavery. From the slavery of sin, he's going to let us go. He's going to free us. So he skips the fruit, and then finally, after the in the traditional Passover meal, the head of the house would uh, would stand up and it would he would serve the main course. And this is the course that everybody had been looking forward to. Wine's great, bread's good. Bitter herbs, not so good. Grapefruit, not so good. But this, this next thing's coming. It's good. And we're excited about this part. And it's the main course. And it's the best part because it has the best story behind it. And that's the lamb. The head of the household um, would take the lamb and he would pass it out to his family. And then they would eat. And as they were eating, he would tell them the story of why they ate the lamb. You see, the lamb by the way, that the family had killed that morning and shed its blood, he would remind his family that the reason that they ate that lamb is because it reminded them of the first Passover night. You see, the, um, the, during their time as slaves in Egypt, if you remember, God was trying to loosen the grip of Pharaoh on the people of God. And so he was sending all these plagues to, to the Egyptian people trying to, Loosen the grip, so he sent frogs, and he sent flies, and he sent boils, and he's turned the Nile into blood, but there was one, one final plague God was going to send to ultimately release Pharaoh from the people of God to let him go, and it was the plague of death. In this one final act, God's just going to bring his sword of justice down on the Egyptians, but... When God tells them that the plague is coming, he tells Moses that the plague is coming, he tells Moses something really interesting. He said, God said, I'm going to send the angel of death to the land, and when I send the angel of death to the land, he's going to kill the firstborn son of the Egyptians and the Israelites. He's going to kill the firstborn son of the Egyptians and the Israelites. And I'm sure Moses and I'm sure the people of God were probably sitting there wondering, now why God in the world would you do that? I thought you were upset at the Egyptians. I thought we were your people. What's the deal? I don't understand, God. They're the bad guys. We're the good guys. Why are you going to send the angel of death and kill the firstborn son of both of us, Egyptians and Israelites, church, here is the answer. Because when it came time for God to pass judgment over sin, when it came time to send a death angel to bring punishment of death for sin, the Egyptians and the Israelites were equally guilty. It's always that way. The people of God and people that aren't people of God, we're both sinners. We're both sinners we've all fallen short of the glory of God. At the end of the day, God's people, church, God's people were just as equally as guilty as the Egyptians of sin. But there was a difference. There was a difference. Even though the people of God and the, and the Egyptians were equally as, as guilty uh, of sin... For the people of God, God provided a way for them to be saved from death. Even though they were just as equally guilty and the death angel is coming, for the people of God, God provided one way for them to be saved from death. And God told them this. He told his people this. He said, hey, when the death angel comes, when the death angel comes, instead of just killing you outright, I'm willing to make an exchange. God in his mercy said, I'm willing to offer you a substitute. God said, if you will take a lamb, a spotless lamb without blemish and you'll shed its blood. If you'll put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of your house, God said, the death angel's coming, but if it sees the blood of the lamb, it will pass over you. You know, Moses, God said, there's, there's some Israelites that are really devout, and there's some Israelites that aren't really devout, and there's some Israelites that really love me, and there's some Israelites that don't. But here's the deal I'm going to offer you a substitute. And if the blood's there, I'll pass over. I'll give you life, and so that's why it's called the Passover, because on the Passover night God provided His people a substitute. God says you don't have to have a dead son, because the lamb can die in His place. What's awesome? What's been messing me up all week, church? (laughs) God's been messing me up. Jesus skips the herbs. He skips the fruit. He skips the lamb. He skips the lamb. Doesn't talk about it. Doesn't remind him. Doesn't pass it out. Doesn't eat it. Why would Jesus skip the most important part of the Passover meal that's been celebrated the exact same way by the command of God for over a thousand years? It's because Jesus was trying to show the disciples. Boys, I am the lamb. Jesus was trying to show the disciples, you don't have to kill a lamb every year anymore because I am the lamb. I, Jesus is saying to them, and He's saying to you today, Jesus is saying, I am God's great exchange. Jesus is saying to them, and he's saying to you today, I am God's once and for all, forever substitute. Jesus is saying to them, in just a few hours, man, I'm going to walk to the cross and I'm going to shed my blood. And if you will trust in my sacrifice, if you will place the blood of Jesus over the doorpost of your life and you'll trust in that blood, if you'll trust in that once and for all, forever sacrifice when the death angel comes looking for you, if it sees the blood of the lamb, it will pass over you. You will not die, but you will live. (laughs) Jesus skips the lamb because he is the lamb. He skips the lamb, and after breaking the bread, he jumps right to the third cup. He jumps right to the third cup. Do you remember what the promise of the third cup was? It's that God was going to ultimately redeem his people. Not by his, not rather by our power, but by his power. Jesus skips the earth, skips the fruit, skips the lamb, and holds up the third cup of the promise of God's redemption through his power and he does this in mark 14:22 he says as they were eating he took bread and after blessing it broke it gave it to them and said take this is my body and then he took a cup and he had given thanks he gave it to them they all drank of it and he said to them this is my blood this is my blood you know this third cup, the promise of God that he's going to redeem the people of God through the power of God, it's my blood. My blood is gonna redeem you, not by your power. It's not gonna matter how good you are or how bad you are. It's gonna be my blood that saves you. It's gonna be my power that saves you. It's not gonna be your effort that saves you. It's not gonna be your work that saves you. I am gonna save you. God's gonna save you through the blood of the Lamb of God. And that is why, that is why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus for the first time as an adult, pointed at Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's why in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Paul says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's why John, the, dis- the disciple, the gospel writer said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only what? Son. son. He gave his son. Not taking ours anymore. He gave his. And that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. I love the gospel. I love the gospel. I get so hung up on thinking it's my effort, my work, my job to make God like, like me, love me, save me. I get so hung up on that. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with the blood of Jesus. I, I literally heard this week a story that reminded me of that. This is at the, we almost done here. Hang with me. We remembered this week the assassination of President Kennedy a couple of days ago. A lot of people don't know this; most people don't know this. But C.S. Lewis died on the exact same day as President Kennedy. C.S. Lewis's death was completely overshadowed by the assassination. And and uh, I was on the phone this week with um, the president of the Religious Liberties um, Committee of Southern Baptist Convention, and it's Doctor Moore. He's preached. The church a couple times, and we were talking about c s Lewis and the impact that he made on our culture. He told the story of a woman that he knew that was older now um, but had grown up an atheist she 'd grown up an atheist and and um, she had been taught as an atheist to despise christianity she 'd been taught as an atheist to despise Christ. And the thing that was interesting about this woman is that even though she had grown up with parents that were atheists and she'd grown up as an atheist, she always loved the Chronicles of Narnia. She loved the story. And she loved C.S. Lewis because he was brilliant. And she loved Aslan. She loved Aslan. And in her whole life, she'd been in love with Aslan. She couldn't get over this character, this lion that when he didn't have to, gave his life so that his friends could live and then would rise from the dead and make everything new. She'd been in love with Aslan her whole life. And only later in life, when she realized that C.S. Lewis was a Christian, it devastated her because she realized that she hadn't been in love with Aslan her whole life. She'd been in love with Jesus her whole life. She'd been in love with Jesus her whole life. How does Jesus melt the heart of an atheist? How does Jesus melt the heart of a woman who'd been taught to despise him? And the answer is this, is that Jesus said, I will be their substitute. I will shed my blood. I'll die so that they don't have to. I'll end with this. Some of you guys may be up here and going, well, there's four cups, Matt. We know what this one means, this one means, this one means. Jesus spoke about this one. What about the fourth cup? You remember what the fourth promise was of God in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and 7? It was the future promise of God that one day he will renew completely the relationship he has with his people. Jesus picks up the third cup, says, it's my blood. I'm going to redeem my people through the power of God, through my blood, and then Jesus does not pick up the fourth cup. He doesn't pick it up. But he does say this about the fourth cup. He says this in Mark 14, 25. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Fourth cup, fourth promise, God's going to completely renew our relationship with him. It's the promise of God. Jesus says, I'm not going to drink that cup now, but I am going to drink it again one day. I'm going to drink it again in the kingdom when we're all together. Jesus says one day, and there's a day that's coming where all the blood-bought people of God are going to be around the table in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're going to lift up the fourth cup. And we're going to drink it anew with Jesus. And we're going to say, Jesus, here's to you. It's all because of you.